Well, as I mentioned, we're beginning a new sermon series, uh, one that I expect will take us at least through the rest of the year uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians. And so the, the first question that we should be asking ourselves is, why 1 Corinthians? Why should we study 1 Corinthians? And the first answer is the answer that I always give, and that is that it is the Word of God. 1 Corinthians is the Word of God. Paul tells us in his letter to Timothy, his second letter, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, those words may be comforting to you. I hope so, that the Word of God is powerful to do those things, but it also means that We, brothers and sisters, are in a period of sanctification. We need things like teaching. We need things like reproof. We need things like being corrected and being trained in righteousness because we are not. And so the Bible helps us do that. The Bible does that work in our hearts. I also think that 1 Corinthians in two particular ways, is very relevant to us. Now, there's a sense in which we understand all of Scripture is relevant to us. Uh, We recognize that. And there are different times when a church may reflect a different church in the New Testament. I don't think we reflect the Corinthian church. That's not where I'm going. Where I'm going is that where the Corinthian church is. In these two particular ways. One is that the situation in Corinth is very much like our situation today. As we work our way through the letter, we will identify ways in which we accommodate our culture. Another way to say that is that we allow ourselves to be corrupted by our culture. So that we can fight for purity in the church. Another is that we face Many of the same challenges today that the church in Corinth faced then related to that. Today, we might... We might label this thing in our culture that inflicts us as hyper-self-autonomy or expressive individualism. It's something that fractures people, that separates people, that puts people in different camps. The church is one body, like this, one body. Fracturing and separating is bad. Unity is good. And we're challenged in that. When you put those two things together, like the Corinthians, we are seeking to learn from the Word of God how we are to live distinctly Christian lives in this pagan world. And how we are to be a devoted Christian community in an increasingly anti-Christian society. I think that's relevant. So why now? Other than that those things are relevant, why are we doing 1 Corinthians now? Well, the main reason is probably that because I've been putting it off for 11 years. (laughs) This might be the most dangerous book I ever preach. It asks us hard questions about ourselves and about our church, like whether we are one or not. It's a dangerous book. 
It's not an easy letter. It's kind of for mature audiences only. Often misunderstood passages, mostly because Paul is addressing very specific things in this very specific church, in this very specific culture. A culture we don't know a lot about, not from the letter itself anyway. It's like we're listening in on a conversation, but we're only hearing one half. And so understanding the context of Corinth, genuinely, without over-speculating or creating straw man, is not an easy task. So we need to have mature and disciplined ears to hear what the Apostle Paul is saying to the church today. And we need to allow ourselves to ask and answer honestly very difficult questions. Questions about our own individual's faith and spirituality. Questions about our church, whether the gospel has functional centrality in our church. That is, do we allow the gospel to do its work unhindered? Or do we resist it? Is the gospel free to function in our collective lives as it ought to? Whether we're truly spiritual or not. 1 Corinthians is a platform from which we're to examine our individual heart's commitment to Christ and our collective spirituality, especially our love for one another. The Word of God, even this Word of God, in case I haven't scared you too much, this Word of God is here to help us. The Apostle's teaching is here to inform and direct us in the way of Christ. So there's good news to be had. There's productive soul work to be done. There's building up of the body to be done in our study of 1 Corinthians. You can, uh, you can look at the sermon theme. This is really kind of a, uh, this is an, uh, it's not an overview sermon, it's an introduction to 1 Corinthians. And I wrote down this theme, the church is called by God and set apart from the world for God. In his wisdom, God grants Salvation to sinners through the saving message of Christ's cross and true spirituality, which flows from the Holy Spirit, is marked by submission to the apostles' teaching and results in love for one another. That's a long one, but it's an introduction sermon about the whole book. So let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I just want to read the greeting, the first three verses. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the greeting from Paul to the church in Corinth. So let's take it piece by piece, the first piece being about Paul. You may remember Paul was born Saul. He was a Jew and a Roman citizen. At a young age, his family sent him to Jerusalem to study to become a teacher and a Pharisee, which he did. 
Because you'll remember that after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the chief priests commissioned this same Saul to stamp out the fledgling Christian church, which he also did. In Acts chapter 9, Saul was on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus when Jesus appeared to him as a blinding light and called Paul, now, to be his apostle to the Gentiles. An apostle is a sent one, a messenger specifically directed to take a message to someone, kind of like an ambassador. And that was around 34 A.D., So Paul seems actually pretty well suited to preach the Jesus Messiah to Gentile people in a Roman city. Paul identifies himself accurately then in verse 1. It is God's will that Paul is an apostle. That's accurate. The Lord Jesus Christ has appointed Paul as his apostle to the Gentiles. Paul is to proclaim the gospel to Gentile peoples. Gentiles are non-Jewish. So you have... Israel, or those who are descendants of Judaism, and then everybody else. Everybody else is a Gentile nation. And Paul is to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles so that the world would be filled with worshipers of God. This is part of carrying forth that great commission to the ends of the earth. So how does Paul get connected with Corinth? Well, that's actually recorded for us in Acts chapter 18. Turn back to Acts chapter 18. Let me read this story of Paul planting this church in Corinth. Acts chapter 18, verse 1. I'll go down through verse 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many people in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. 
After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took his leave of his brothers and set sail for Syria. So, back to verse 1. That account begins with the words, after this, which begs a question, doesn't it? After what? Paul came to Corinth after what? Well, after escaping a midnight murder plot in Damascus, in Acts chapter 9, after being driven out of Pisidian Antioch by the Jews, in Acts chapter 13, after being stoned, dragged out of Lystra, left for dead in the road, in Acts chapter 14, after being jailed and publicly beaten in Philippi, in Acts chapter 16, and after escaping violent riot in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. That's when Paul received a mixed reception in Athens with some small success, just a few men joining him, and after that, Paul left Athens and arrives in Corinth about 51 AD. Now, when you think of first Athens, when you think of Athens, do you ever think of Athens? So when I went to high school, they taught a class called Western Civilization. I don't know if they still teach that. Or if you took that, you'd know a little bit about Athens. Or if you watched the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, you would learn a little bit about Athens. So you might have some knowledge of Athens. And, and if you're thinking about Athens, you might think of it as the pinnacle of Greek structure. The seat of higher learning in the ancient world. You probably picture the Acropolis, that, that high mount on which were built many temples to many pagan gods, the ones, you know, in Disney movies and Greek mythology, those. And Athens is in the, the northern part of Greece, which is called Macedonia, which lies about 45 miles east of Corinth. Corinth also has a high mount on which were built pagan temples. It's called the Acra Corinth. And on a clear day, you could see from the Acra Corinth all the way to the Acropolis in Athens. Athens was within eyesight. Athens, Athens was the, the center of great learning. Now south of Corinth, farther away, was another great city that you've probably heard of. It was located in the southern part of Greece, which is called the Peloponnesus. So Macedonia, Peloponnesus. That city was called Sparta. If Athens was the great center of learning, then Sparta was the great center of warfare. We've all heard of the military might, the military genius, the military courage, and the exploits of Sparta. Now, if you look at a map, Macedonia to the north, the Peloponnesus to the south, are connected by a very tiny strip of land, a strip of land called the Isthmus. It's a land bridge. It's about six miles long and only four miles wide. And that is where Corinth is located. On that Isthmus, with the two great land masses, on that Isthmus, with two seas on each side, east and west. The Aegean Sea, the Iconian Sea, right at that crossroads is Corinth. Now this is not the ancient Greek city of Corinth. That city was destroyed by the Romans in 146 BC. It lay in ruins for 100 years. There was nothing 
but stones and hermits living there for 100 years. Then, in 440, or excuse me, 44 BC, it was completely rebuilt by Julius Caesar as a Roman city. This is the new Corinth, rebuilt by rich Roman patrons, populated by Roman ex-soldiers. They would give them land grants. Here you can go there. You'll have land and wealth. Roman freedmen populated this city and then built it up. And it grows rapidly, very rapidly. It's a boom town because of its location. It lies on the crossroads of two major trade routes. The north-south road connecting Macedonia and the Peloponnesus and the east-west shipping route. Well, wait a minute. That's not a shipping route. It's a, it's a four-mile-wide land block to a shipping route. Yeah, but, but they just go right over the top of it. Ships traveling east and west saved time and their cargo and sometimes their lives by going over the isthmus to the other side rather than sailing down around the Cape of Malay in the southern part of the Peloponnesus. It was a longer trip. It was a more treacherous trip. And they saved time hauling their cargo over the land. You can, you can unload it, carry it across on wagons, put it on a different ship, and things move on. Smaller ships... Smaller ships were actually taken out of the water. They were placed on rollers. And the whole ship moved the four-mile trek across the land, put back in the water, and continued on. So Corinth became very prosperous, very quickly. And its population grew, adding people from all over the Roman world. As an international trade route, people from everywhere filled Corinth, and suddenly... <clears throat> suddenly this great economic center is, is, is pluralistic in its, in its cosmopolitan ways and attitudes, and, 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 and Corinth becomes this great economic center. So when the apostle Paul arrives in Corinth around 51 AD, Corinth is prospering. Corinth, Corinth is bright lights, big city. It's bustling with international trade having its own business industry and supporting this growing city. And, and every two years, they conducted the Isthmian Games. You've heard of the Olympics. Second only to the Olympics are the Isthmian Games. These, these, these Olympic-like trials every two years, bringing, bringing boon to the city. So Corinth is a destination city. It's the place to go. You know, one commentator said that, that Corinth was at once New York City, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas. It's a very exciting place to be. So Paul enters the city, finds a place to stay, and a place to work with Aquila and Priscilla, and he begins teaching the Jews in the synagogue that Jesus is the Christ. They were waiting for a Christ, but they didn't know who he was, and so Paul tells them that it was Jesus of Nazareth. And what did they do? Well, they opposed him, and they reviled him. Okay, that sounds personal. So he rebukes them. And he says, I'm going to go preach the gospel to the Gentiles, which, by the way, begins next door, right? And many Gentiles hear the gospel and believe, and they're baptized into the new church in Corinth. Now, interestingly, Crispus, did you notice, the ruler of the synagogue believes and is saved. Later, his replacement, Sosthenes, the next ruler of the synagogue, believes, and is saved. I mean, it's just fun to watch God do that and save the most, the most unlikely people, 
into his church. <clears throat> but uh, this makes the Jews mad. And, uh, and Paul can see the trouble brewing. He's seen it before. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul writes to the Corinthian church saying, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. We tend to forget the actual harm inflicted upon Paul because of his gospel ministry. There was not a single city on his mission routes that opened the doors wide and welcomed him. We either forget that or we tend to minimize the impact that constant opposition and regular reviling had on this man. Paul enters this huge, intimidating city of Corinth in real weakness and real fear and actual trembling. How do we know that's the case? Because in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10, God himself speaks with his apostle, saying, do not be afraid. It's okay, Paul. Go on speaking and do not be silent. It's okay, Paul. I'm with you. No one will attack you. No one will harm you here. At that time, in that place, the Apostle Paul needed to know that God was sovereign and that his labor was not in vain. This time, it looked like it was, it was just too much this time, walking into Corinth. And the Lord gave his Apostle that reassurance. I want us to make some application of this right here for us. I think we wrongly allow ourselves to think that every city was wide open to the Apostle Paul, that he was naturally fearless and wildly successful everywhere that he went. I mean, he's Paul. And since it's not that way for us, we think it's okay for us to take a pass on sharing the gospel with others. Paul somehow had a golden ticket, but I don't have that golden ticket. What really happened is that Paul took up his cross and he followed Jesus, just as we are all called to do. Now, we may be thinking, well, if God told me I couldn't be harmed <clears throat> the way he told Paul, I'd be bold like Paul too, right? Really? Would we really? What about all the other towns in which Paul was beaten and received the 39 lashes and was stoned and left for dead? Okay. Paul's got no golden ticket. What about the times yet to come when Paul is hounded by the Jews from town to town, dragged into the courts and accused, regularly fleeing for his very life, which, by the way, will end in martyrdom? Doesn't sound like a golden ticket to me. See, we tend to see God's reassurance to Paul as that golden ticket. What it really was, was God's promise that Paul's labor here would not be in vain. 
Paul's sovereign God would save people in Corinth by Paul's preaching of the gospel. So Paul labored on in Corinth for 18 months to plant a church where previously there was not one. So he had a brief golden ticket, right? Just a few months, you won't get hurt. And I know what you're thinking. Sosthenes labored on with Paul without that same promise, that same promise we don't have, and they beat the snot out of Sosthenes. Right there in front of the Roman authorities. Why would Sosthenes do that? Why, why, what promise did Sosthenes have? The same one that we have. The same one that Paul had, which was more extended than the brief 18 months. The same one that Paul wrote to the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Because of the promised resurrection that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That was the promise that Sosthenes had. And that same Sosthenes here in Corinth is with Paul in Ephesus four years later when he writes this letter back to the church in Corinth. When Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he reminds them of their faithful brother Sosthenes, who they saw get beaten for the cause of the gospel, still working for the Lord because his labor in the Lord is not in vain. We don't have a promise from God that we won't be harmed if we share the gospel here. But we do have God's same promise that he is with us. And we do not have God's command to we do have God's command to speak and not be silent. Because even here our sovereign God is saving sinners through the proclamation of Christ's gospel and Christ is our golden ticket. It is rightly observed that almost every one of the New Testament letters is written to correct a problem in a local church. But the church in Corinth takes the cake with at least 10 discernible problems that Paul will address with the gospel. And the source of the problems in the Corinthian church are found in the city of Corinth itself. The people in the church, when they come to saving faith, Bring the values and attitudes and ambitions of Corinth right into the church with them. That's what happens. Corinth valued wealth and power, reputation and celebrity, competition and triumph. The city bred attitudes of self-centeredness, self-indulgence, self-confidence, self-promotion, and competition, all of them on steroids. People would do anything for pleasure, anything for wealth, anything for a higher rank. Corinth was the place to go to make something more of yourself. Now you can see how these things would actually make a mess when they get inside the church. And they did in a very short time. Paul planted the church of Corinth in 51 AD, then he moved on to Ephesus. Sometime after that, we don't know exactly how long, Paul wrote a letter back to the church in Corinth 
prior to this letter, which we call 1 Corinthians. And so theologians refer to that as the prior letter. They're really clever that way. And we know this because Paul mentions the prior letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. And in that letter, Paul addresses sexual immorality in the church and how the church should deal with it. But it doesn't go well. It doesn't go well. The church misunderstands Paul's instructions. The church's worldliness doesn't allow them to discern what is sexual immorality. And so they respond in arrogance, thinking themselves to be more spiritual than Paul. There go those city values. Why should they listen to him? So in 54, maybe 55 AD, Paul writes this letter that we call 1 Corinthians. And, and to correct that misunderstanding of his prior letter was one reason, but there were some other reasons too, some other occurrences that took place. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 11, Paul writes, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, brothers. Apparently some members of the church from Chloe's household were in Ephesus, and they, and they told Paul about divisions that were happening in the church, factions that were growing in the church. The church itself had also, around that same time, written a letter to, to uh, Paul in Ephesus to answer a number of specific questions about doctrine and practice. We know this from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, when Paul writes now, concerning the matters about which you wrote to me. So Paul's answering questions that are specifically asked by this church. And he writes 1 Corinthians to address these specific issues in this specific church, in this specific cultural context, at this specific time. Context is always key to interpreting Scripture. We have to know the context in which we're working. But even more so, I think, in 1 Corinthians. Because they're so specifically contextually driven. The Corinthians are asking questions about contentious matters, like apostolic authority, the proper form of preaching, excommunicating members, order in the worship service, even the resurrection, in light of specific things going on in their congregation. And Paul is answering them. So we need to do our very best to understand them in the context to avoid misunderstanding. The Corinthians are asking questions about things that seem strange to us, foreign to us, like lawsuits, blatant publicly known sexual immorality, and meat offered to idols, head coverings, and speaking in tongues. And he's, asking all of those, he's answering those things in light of specific things going on in that congregation. So we need to do our very best to understand them in context to avoid misunderstanding. Now, I've been careful to call this sermon an introduction rather than an overview. The ten problems that Paul has to correct are just too many and too complicated to cover briefly. And we are, after all, going to cover them in depth as we work our way through the letter. But I thought I would do this. To show you just how messed up this church had gotten and to give you an idea of, God, of Paul's gospel application to each one of their ten issues, that, that I'll do this. It's kind, of a, so it's kind of a jeopardy kind of principle here. Instead of reading through all of the problems and the questions that the church has, I'm just going to give you a succinct 
gospel answer to each one of those problems. And then you can imagine you know, what the questions might be, what the issues are. These are ten answers, not in Paul's words, but as I believe we are to understand them. I'm just going to run right down through them. Paul says to the church, do not divide yourselves over faithful teachers in the church. It's a problem in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. Paul says, do not tolerate open, unrepentant sin in the church. It's a problem in chapter 5. Paul says, do not bring lawsuits against one another. It's a problem in the beginning of chapter 6. He says, do not indulge in any sexual immorality. Like they had to be told that in the second half of chapter 6. Serve the Lord to the fullest extent that you can, whether married or single. It's a problem he deals with in chapter 7. Be willing to give up your rights for the sake of the gospel, that is, to glorify God in the building up of the brethren. He deals with that in chapters 8, 9, 10. When the church gathers to worship, Paul says we are to observe our God-given gender roles. Chapter 11. Do not celebrate the Lord's Supper in a way that divides believers, especially the rich from the poor. The last part of chapter 11. Desire the most edifying spiritual gifts and use them to build up the body of Christ in love. Not to self-aggrandize. Paul deals with that in chapters 12, 13, and 14. Number 10, answer number 10, Rejoice that the dead in Christ will be resurrected. Chapter 15. So there's your overview. Very brief. Now, now those all sound like very practical, obvious applications of the gospel. Surely any church knows those things. But the questions and the problems in the Corinthian church are far more provocative. But they tend to fall into two basic categories. I wonder if you can see this. Paul is writing, in one sense, to correct the church's whole worldview. To help them, as saved people, to stop looking at life in the world through the lens of Roman society's impure values. Because that has led to impurity in the church, which ruins the church's witness to a watching world. Their compromise has also led to conflict within the church. So their witness to the world was one of confusion and conflict. All of the problems Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians stem from embracing the impure values of Roman society, hear the word compromise, which results in disunity in the church. Hear the word conflict, which results in that. So correcting the impurity is the way to correct the disunity. So that the church would reflect the unity and the purity of Christ's own body, which is what the church is. You know, when I think of 1 Corinthians, I think of Babel. You remember? Remember the, the people in Babel, at the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11? So prideful, so arrogant, saying, we don't need God, we'll build our own tower to heaven. We'll build a name for ourselves that's greater than the name of God. <laughs> that's Corinth. The most distinctive aspect of pluralism, all these many cultures and all these many beliefs, in Corinth was its religious pluralism. 
They had temples to all the Roman gods in Corinth. On the top of the Acre Corinth was a temple to the goddess Aphrodite, serviced by female prostitutes. At the base of the Acre Corinth was a temple to the god Apollo, serviced by male prostitutes. Corinth was so famous for its sexual immorality that it became a euphemism to Corinthianize, was meant to carouse and and commit uh, sexual immorality. And this is the place Paul came in weakness and in fear. This is the place where Paul preached nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? So that these Corinthians' faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, which is foolishness, but in the power of God that resurrects life. This is who Paul writes to. (laughs) This messed up church. And what does he call them? In verse 2, you are the church of God. You don't get to decide for yourself to sin. You are the church of God. Listen to Listen to what, uh, what Paul says to them. Just picking up in chapter 1, verse 4. Just read that next paragraph. Listen to what he says to them. Them, I give thanks to my God always for you. Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Stop looking at the foolish and, frankly, pathetic world around you. You are the church of God. Jesus Christ is your Lord. The Holy Spirit is sustaining you, the church in unity, and will make you guiltless, the church in purity, before God. He'll do that. And I think there's... I'll pause. There's just an immediate, but it's a brief and obvious application for us here. We'll take all the time we need to unpack and understand all ten problems in the church in Corinth, but today we can see that we are the church of God. That is who is gathered here this morning. We are the church of God. Jesus Christ is sanctifying us by the word of his truth and by the word of his power. That's what's happening right now as you listen. And together, we are his saints. I think, I think about the church and, and how, how foolish they are in their sins. And I know I've told you this story before. It's just a story about a little boy who, who tends to fall out of the bed at night. And he goes to bed one night and he wakes up in the middle of the night on the floor. Gets back in bed. Goes to bed the next night, wakes up in the middle of the night on the floor, gets back in bed. 
wakes up the next morning and he asks his mom, Mom, why do, I, why do I keep falling out of bed at night? And she says, because you're sleeping too close to the edge. We have to change our willingness to accommodate our wicked culture. We need to give more effort to our pursuit of purity in Christ, which will rightly increase our unity with one another in Christ. Do you hear what that sounds like? That sounds like love. Love. And our gospel witness depends upon it. Love one another as I have loved you, and they will know that you're mine. I think we're going to bump up against these ideas of unity and purity as we work our way through the book, but there seems to be a thread that unites those. The things that unites those with the gospel that runs throughout the entirety of Paul's letter, and it's the idea of spirituality. In Corinth, true spirituality, I'm going to call that holy spirituality, is in competition with these many pluralistic false spiritualities. Spirituality is very popular today where we live, isn't it? People will very proudly say, I'm a very spiritual person. Right? And I want to ask, well, which spirit is it? Which is the appropriate question? More and more, people are claiming not to be religious, while at the same time, they are claiming to be very spiritual. They will say, I believe in God, but I'm just not religious. Or they will say, I don't believe in God, but I am very spiritual. Is there any surprise that the spirituality of today fits hand in glove with society's values? You can be spiritual in that way and fall right in line with all of the values of the pagan society. Popular spirituality embraces society's values of hyper-individualism and hyper-autonomy, me, me, me. Popular spirituality embraces society's morality. They're pro-choice, pro-LGBTQ, pro-trans morality. The only thing that today's popular spirituality condemns is true spirituality. Life in the Spirit, that is what Paul emphasizes throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians. It's kind of a letter about spirituality. How are we to live true Christian lives in this pagan world? By being truly spiritual people. True spirituality is grounded in the wisdom of God. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, just, just verses 17 and 18. Paul writes, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. God's wisdom 
is revealed to us in the cross of Jesus Christ. In other words, in the death of Jesus Christ. Nobody in the Roman city of Corinth wants to hear about Jesus' Roman execution, his Roman crucifixion. I mean, that is the ultimate failure. You don't want to make your name for yourself in that way. But the word of the cross, the word of Christ's atoning, sin-atoning death on the cross, the word of Christ's death, it's foolishness to them. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to you, to those who are being saved, to the church of God, it's the wisdom of God. This is the wisdom of God that has brought about our salvation. True spirituality is grounded in the gospel wisdom of God. So, that's what Paul preaches. He preaches the cross. Look at 1 Corinthians, just over in chapter 2, verse verse 1. Paul says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul didn't come to Corinth to make a name for himself like everybody else. Paul came to make the name of Christ known. The Corinthians wanted a a spectacular preacher with oratory skills that everyone outside the church would say, oh, they're awesome. Paul spoke to deliver content, a message. The word of the cross that saves. Behold, not the man who preaches, behold Christ, the man preached. That's why we're here. Dear friend, if you have not beheld Christ on the cross as the one who has atoned for your sins, or if you have beheld him but have not been willing to leave everything and follow him, look on him now. Look on him now as the wisdom of God, the wise plan of God for the forgiveness of your sins and the power of God to grant you true holy spirituality for living. True spirituality is grounded in the wisdom of God and it is activated by the Holy Spirit of God. Pick up in the next next verse, chapter 2, verse 6. I'm just going to read this. It's fairly self-explanatory. Paul writes, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, 
but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The agent of true spirituality is the agent of God's wisdom who is the Holy Spirit of God. And we're going to unlock this in greater detail later, but the question is, what spirit is the agent of your spirituality? The Holy Spirit of God is the only agent of true spirituality. Look at 1 Corinthians. Well, uh, let, me, let me edit in this way. The church is the collective people of God, and it is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit of God, Paul says. Isn't that awesome? Man, that's awesome. The church is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit of God. It's not something you have to feel first. It's something that you know first. And then you experience it. Yes, you and I are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Yes, that means that, you're, that our individual bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. But the Bible goes on to great lengths to tell us that we're living stones who are collectively assembled to be the temple of the Holy Spirit now and forever. There's no surprise here that the Holy Spirit is the defining mark of the new covenant. We've even talked about that recently. God promised through the prophet Joel that he would pour out his Holy Spirit on his people. And that is exactly what happened at Pentecost. So true spirituality is grounded in the wisdom of God. It's activated by the Spirit of God. And it results in the love of God. What does true spirituality look like? What's the defining mark of holy spirituality? Just as the city of Corinth had everything in abundance, the church in Corinth had an abundance of spiritual gifts. They had them in breadth, they had them in depth, and yet Paul says that there's, there's something greater from the Spirit. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Beginning in verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. We can sum it up this way. Love is gracious. It's humble. It's selfless. 
It's righteous. And it's resilient. Holy spirituality clears away all the clutter in the Corinthian church. All the clutter and confusion of religious pluralism and false spiritualities. All the clutter of personal ambition and self-promotion and worldly success. All the clutter of division and factions in the church. And it says this one simple thing. Do everything in love. Do everything in love. How do we live distinctly Christian lives in this pagan world? We do it together. As truly spiritual people who have God's Holy Spirit by virtue of believing in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, resulting in one defining mark that we love one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that indeed instructs us, corrects us, guides us, helps us. Father, give us the knowledge of your word who is Christ. Give us the love that is Christ in our hearts that we might love one another. Make us your spiritual people, willing to tell others how they can be truly spiritual people. We pray that you would do all these things for your glory. It's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.